Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor, and I'm here for you. Today we're going to talk about ways to stop tolerating abuse. Abuse you may not even have recognized that is happening now or that happened earlier in your life. Maybe you'll hear something today that you really need to hear. It's my hope that you will. You're not alone. It's not your fault. You are not to blame. And I'll help you use that redirected energy to recover and to rediscover you, your values, your dreams, your desires, and then realize them in healthy ways and in healthy relationships at home and at work. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm excited that you're here and I hope that you are too because every week we have new things for you, new guests, new ideas, new ways of dealing with the toxic, difficult people in our lives and this week is no exception. This is episode 33 of the Relationship Help Show and today I'm going to start a little series that you'll get in parts each week, which is called How Do I Learn to Trust? So that's something to look forward to. Also, have a great guest today, Dr. Michael Regeer. And we are going to be talking about, you ready? Betrayal, trauma, and relationships. And even talking about emotional affairs, what they are, and why they're so devastating. That will be with Dr. Michael Regeer. And then I'm going to do a Q&A and answer a listener's question. And what a question it was. The question was about, should I listen to my therapist who told me to just stop reacting and do nothing when my hijackal husband goes off like a Roman candle? Or should I be setting boundaries? Or what do you think? Dr. Shaler, she said, and I'm going to share that in in the last segment of today's show. So lots of good things for you here. Remember, you can listen live any Tuesday night at bbsradio.com, 6 p.m. Pacific, and go bbsradio.com slash relationship help show. Anytime you can go and visit the archives at BBS Radio or at RelationshipHelpShow.com. Stay tuned. Such a great show for you today. Talk soon. Hello, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are these stories and questions on today's show sounding familiar to you? Are you ready to say no more to the abuse from toxic people in your life? I'm so glad. You matter and you deserve to have real love, true love in your life. Love from yourself and love from others. Not that demeaning, discounting, and dismissive masquerade that a hijackal pretends is love. I can help you regain yourself, your self-esteem, your self-confidence after a life with a hijackal, whether it was your partner, an ex, a parent, or a child. Let's work together now. For individual sessions or small group coaching, visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join. Talk soon.
Trust is a big issue, especially if you've had a hijackal parent and then you have a hijackal partner. Or if you just created a relationship with a hijackal, you come to realize it. Then you have to ask yourself, how do I learn to trust? So in part one of this, I'm just going to give you a few background information pieces. And then next week, we'll have part two. So perhaps one of the most demanding and dangerous principles of anyone's spiritual journey is trust. Many people think of trust as an economic commodity that can be earned or offered as a reward. The reality is, I think, that trust is a gift. No one deserves it. No one is owed it. Trust is fairly dichotomous in that you either give it or you don't. There's no middle ground. You can't trust a little or a lot. You either trust or you do not trust. To trust a little is not to trust at all. So to be able to trust another person, we have to be able to trust ourselves. That's usually the place where the whole system falls apart, right? What indication do you have that you actually trust yourself? Are you trustworthy? I can tell you one quick way to find out if, under all, you believe you are trustworthy. Ask yourself if you keep your commitments to yourself. That's fundamental. And of course, You can figure that out easily because did you ever make a New Year's resolution that you didn't keep? That undermines your trustworthiness to yourself. We need to trust that we have what it takes to deal with life as it unfolds. And if we lack this basic level of trust, we're constantly living in fear that catastrophe is just around the corner and that we may not be able to recover from it. We're always waiting for that proverbial other shoe to drop in life. And if you've had that in your background in with a hijackal parent, it's going to be even more. And many people then doubt their ability to deal with the pain, the difficulty and complexities of life. So they seek to avoid being exposed to these normal and natural, though unwanted aspects of life. And then within those attempts to avoid the exposure, that is the seedbed of drama and escape. The ego actually trusts no one, not even itself. Since we can't give gifts we don't possess, I talk about that all the time, the ego can neither give nor receive trust. And people who have been abused or traumatized find trusting others to be extremely difficult. So what is trust? There are many complicated definitions found in the dictionary and in our book, Soul Solitude, Taking Time for Our Souls to Catch Up, we approach it simply And we define trust as a matter of mattering. If I matter to myself, then I can trust that my life has meaning and significance. Because my life has meaning and significance, then I can trust that I have what it takes to realize that meaning and significance of my life. I can trust the source of the meaning and significance of my life because I matter to the source, whatever we term that entity or system. Because I matter to the source, I can trust the base premise of the central spiritual principles. Key to our work with trust is this simple affirmation. Everything is as it must be now, right in this second, because I can't do anything about it. I am at peace. I choose to be at peace. If I can trust this to be true, then I have what it takes to deal with everything that unfolds in my life. 
I can trust that I will experience things that will assist my soul in learning and growing, and I can trust that such experiences may be extremely difficult for my ego. I can trust that people will abandon, betray, and destroy me, and I can trust knowing that they are capable of causing me pain and difficulty, but I can trust that I have what it takes to deal with such matters. I have every reason and every right to trust no one. But if I fail to trust the source, myself or others, my alternative is to live in fear and trembling. And even though my life will end in death, I need to trust that even that mystery is part of the larger mystery which engulfs me. Trust seems impossible, but it is absolutely necessary. I hope you'll think about those things until next week when we do part two of How Can I Learn to Trust. This is Dr. Shaler. Talk soon. Life as a couple can be exciting and enriching. You both feel supported, known, heard, and appreciated. You know you're safe. Is that what you're experiencing? Does your partner have your back? Can you be vulnerable safely? Do you trust each other fully? Would you say you were emotionally intimate? If not, things can get much better. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and I work with couples just like you all over the world by video conferencing. If you want a world-class relationship, learn how now. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join and schedule a time to work together. Let's talk soon for relationshiphelp.com slash join. So welcome back. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Michael Rigier. And we're talking about some fascinating things, some things that relate to hijackals, some things to relate to couples who just aren't seeing eye to eye and maybe haven't seen eye to eye for a long time. And finally they come and they get some help. And we were talking about emotional affairs and betrayal, and this is important. So I promised that we would start the second part, Michael, by talking about toxic relationships and how that relates and changes the dynamic here and and you know because you you know my work um, I coined the term hijackals because I don't like people going to the Google goddess and saying my partner behaves this way and then they get some kind of psychological label and then they go around saying well my partner is a narcissist or a borderline or a sociopath or whatever and now it's all my all my partner's fault right (laughs) Right. You know, right. and, and that's inappropriate because hijackals have traits, patterns, and cycles that you are engaging in enabling. And so we need to learn about those. So let's talk about what happens when somebody gets into a relationship where that one person, as you were saying in part one, seems so confident and so strong and everything, and the other person is attracted to that because they may be anxious. So mm. they feel like this is a great bond. Then there is a shift occurs or the anxious person starts to blossom. What happens then, Michael? Yeah. Well, when that shift occurs, it, it, it begins to destabilize the relationship. And so the anxious person will try to pull the other person in 
will express more emotion. And w in, in our work, we're always talking about, about this emotional interchange. And what we say is that the cycle, the emotional cycle, not each other, is the enemy of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And if you can understand the push and pull of the emotional cycle, you can learn how to escape the cycle. So when in this kind of therapy, it's, a, it's really intense because the therapist actually moves the emotional people even more into emotion, but tries to get them in their primary vulnerable emotion rather than their reactive emotions. Mm. And so when they can talk out of that place of vulnerability and feelings of loneliness and hurt and sadness, and then the other person can, in a vulnerable way, say, I get it, I'm feeling your pain, and I want to be there for you, then that begins to de-escalate the cycle and the relationship begins to heal. Okay, so what happens if you're with a hijackal and you go to the hijackal, the toxic person, the person who has been set up to be uh, the person who needs nothing, the person who is always in control, of course, that person is very fearful and right. they'll shatter in an instant. So they, they do all of these things so that they don't shatter and they protect themselves. Mm -hmm. How they do that is to get power control over other people. So what happens when the toxic person decides to go out and have an affair and says to the other person, well, you shouldn't care because you're such a mess. I have to do something. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cruel and you know if they come in we we work with that that's that is a defense it's really a fear of getting too close to the other person's pain and it's kind of like gaslighting it's saying you're crazy um i'm okay you shouldn't be reacting the way you are and again that's that is part of the the negative cycle that and we we work with that and what we find is that you know, that person that looks confident, when you really get underneath of it, they're incredibly afraid, they're incredibly vulnerable. But will they admit it? They do. They In do. your experience, you see, because my, my practice is focused on these people, what my ha I have found is that they will only come into a relationship with a professional if they believe that they can exploit and seduce the professional. Mm -hmm. And at the moment that they find that they cannot, that they're actually seen, they storm out and storm off. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always the outliers. And so there's always some people that don't respond to this form of therapy, but the majority do. But the professional has to maintain neutrality, has to continue to focus them back on the emotion, back on their vulnerability, takes a lot of skill, but it's possible. And EFT is an empirically validated form of therapy. It's got tons of research and it has great outcomes. So, you know, it's being practiced all over the world. And we turn these kinds of relationships around a lot, but people have to learn safe emotional communication and they can't do this blaming because as you know, you know, in the Gottman research, when people stonewall and they blame and name call, those are the big predictors of divorce. 
Yeah, they are. And, you know, he, here's why I'm asking the question, Michael, because my audience are people who have really experienced life with a hijackal, whether mm -hmm. they've had a hijackal parent mm -hmm. or a partner they're currently with or an ex or someone in the community or at work. And there is no getting anywhere with this. It is always the hijackal here, the other person here. And, and the hijackal has no interest in any kind of personal growth, any kind of inquiry. They simply need and want to be right and find fault. And I want to make sure that my audience realizes the distinction between those who can and will go in a direction that you're speaking of, which is great. Mm -hmm. And there are those people, as you say, in the Gottman research, when they're stonewalling and withholding and blaming, right. and they refuse to move from there, which is often the dyed-in-the-wool hijackal, the mm -hmm. hijackal who has both the DNA markers, the brain chemistry, and the background that has put them in that position, mm -hmm. who are incapable and unwilling of moving in that direction. So say more about how you determine whether this couple can be helped. Well, I think the first test is, you know, whether they care about the relationship enough to want to get into therapy. But uh, what if they care about the relationship enough because the hijackal wants more power, and so they come in and they tell their story in such a compelling way to the professional that the professional says, oh, I see this, and begins to then be less than neutral. And so you're not working with the right professional because it's our job not to get seduced by that. I so agree with you. And I wanted to hear you say that because <laughs> so many times I have clients who say, you know, you're the first person who didn't go down that path. Right. You know, and you know, I'm, I understand that many professionals do not see people in this way they don't have those people in their practices very often and so it even they read about it in a book somewhere but they don't actually understand what that lived experience is yeah. and so they 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 do that but i was so happy that you said that because it is so rewounding for a couple to go the partner so hopeful that there's going to be a shift in the relationship and the hijackal so determined that they're going to come out on top mm -hmm. yeah i mean the whole power and control piece is in in my experience it's it's rooted in their fear yes and the the professional has to be able to see through that and not you know, not be seduced by it, not that person needs to be brought back over and over and over again to their vulnerable emotion. And which they're not happy to see. They're not happy to see it. And this is hard work. Um, EFT therapists, um, you know, I train therapists now, um, supervise them in their certification but just the certification process is just hundreds of hours of taping sessions and having somebody that knows the model look at your work because we are human beings as therapists and emotion can be scary and i know how long it took me to stop sitting back in my chair and just basically do the reflective thing as opposed to getting right 
close, up personal, stop, stop the person who's, you know, belittling the other person and saying, look, I need the other person to talk now and move back and forth, back and forth, identifying, identifying the triggers. It's really hard, grueling work, but that's what changes the relationship because people don't know how to be in a safe, emotionally connected relationship without using these kinds of toxic defenses. And it's our job to help them learn a better way. Uh, I so agree. And, you know, if you, when you're listening to this and if you're in a difficult relationship, know that there are many avenues to go down to get help. And people like Dr. Michael Regeer, my guest, he can help you determine can this actually work or is this actually best left? And and that's the work that I often do with people too because you don't know that. Your experience is your experience of the relationship, not the experience of hundreds of relationships. Right. And so we have a way of helping calibrate whether or not things can get better. And that's not an instant assessment by any means. It takes a while, doesn't it? We've got to talk with them for a while and, and, and you know, pull at the edges and see what's really here and see how far people will go to, to uh, actually tell the truth and talk things out or how much their fear gets in the way. How long do you think it takes to determine whether or not a marriage can, in fact, improve? You know, it's, that's a great question. And we kind of work at it from uh, a place of neutrality, most of the time related to that assessment, unless, unless it's an obviously abusive relationship. And we say, then you need to stop the abuse and maybe leave the relationship. But that's, that's rare in my experience. What we do most of the time is make the assumption that if people want to be in the relationship and they want to do the work, that there's a way for them to improve. And so, you know, some couples can successfully do that in 15 sessions. Um, I have one couple, I'm on my sixth year with them. Yes. Um, and well, God bless them for hanging in. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. But they've, they've wanted to keep trying and they've come out of severe trauma, both of them, and have made remarkable gains. Um, but some people just, need to do more work than other people and it just depends so yeah and and i would add to that conversation michael that that sometimes having a person feel safe enough to even talk to me one-on-one if they're in that very fearful dominant avoidant place Mm -hmm. takes a lot of time like i'll have people who will will talk to me and they maybe talk to me three times and then you get a little too close to their pain or they feel it's too close and they feel that it's a danger to them. They're going to lose their facade of being the perfect mm-hmm. person in control. And so they withdraw and then they come back again and dance around it a little more. Is that your experience? Yeah. And basically it's, you know, all the predictors, all the research predictors suggest that the most important thing is the therapeutic alliance, how the connection that we're making with our clients. And so we, we try to make it as safe as we can. We try to connect the best that we can, but we give people the room to open up as they're ready to open up. 
and that that's an experience of a safe relationship for them that they may never have had before. So let's talk about something that you expressed in, in this way, and I think it's a great place for us to finish our conversation, is you say that there is something that is the appropriate emotional expression vital for lifetime love. What right. is that? Well, it it's basically being your authentic self with another person and being able to tune in uh, we call it emotional attunement, attune into what the other person is feeling and validate those emotions. Right. We call emotion energy in motion, and we, we don't judge it. We simply, in, in a primary emotional relationship, we want our emotions to be accepted by the other person. So when we feel that acceptance, when we feel that validation, then we bond and we feel close. And then when conflicts come up, whether they're money or sex or whatever. Children. Um, yeah, children, right? Th then it's so much easier to talk things through when we know we're emotionally safe and secure with each other. So much to learn. Now, we talked at the beginning in part one, we talked about attachment. And obviously, Dr. Michael Regeer is somebody that you can, you can uh, look to for more information on that. You might also be interested in my conversations with Dr. Gary Salyer, because we talked about attachment a great deal there. And we've had also um, people, guests on trauma bonding and things like that. So all these things are related. So be sure to go back in the archives and pick up some of these pieces of gold that are there for you on the journey. So, Michael, this book that you've written, Emotional Connection, the story and science of preventing conflict and creating lifetime love. I think that book must be six inches thick. I read it. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, it's, it's an actually a pretty easy read. It reads a little bit like a novel because of the story part of it. So it but it, all of that, we try to take the reader through those different stages of, of conflict, trauma, and repair in a, in a way that, that makes sense by helping them identify with this couple and then my gently explaining the science which is underneath of it. And so um, I think your readers will find it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really um, easy read, enjoyable read, as opposed to something that's daunting. Well, I really wanted you to say that, Michael, because when we hear the word science in the title of a book, there's a bunch of people go, whoa, maybe not. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted you to clarify that yeah. because we do need to know that we're not alone. And right. scientific study allows us to know that here, a whole lot of people are going through this. You're not alone. That's and, right. And yeah. that's why it's a good thing to have the science to look at, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Michael, for being on the program. Thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with today? You know, I just want to leave them with a lot of hope. You know, sometimes if we've had a relationship failure or two, and I've had a failed marriage, um, people can begin to think that they're damaged and they can't have a great relationship. And that's just not true. 
we can learn to repair whatever these patterns are of insecurity and, and really have a wonderful relationship if we can learn what's underneath of our insecurity and practice healthy emotional communication with another person. Beautifully said, and it sounds exactly like the title of your book, Emotional Connection. So my guest is Dr. Michael Regeer. You want to hear more about him? You want to read more about him? You want to get his book? So go to michaelregeer.com. You know how to spell Michael, but it's R-E-G-I-E-R.com. Yes. <laughs> so make sure you go to michaelregeer.com. And for more of this wonderful conversations with remarkable experts, go to the archives, go to relationshiphelpradio.com, look at all the shows there, go back and learn and listen. And I hope that we'll have Dr. Regeer on again. Thanks so much for being with us, and let's talk soon. Hi, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Handling hijackles is exhausting. It's never-ending. An endless cycle of crazy-making, alienation, and constant drama. And cycles are difficult to step out of. I know, because I've been there too. And that's why I reach out to you to offer the insight, skills, and strategies you need to heal. My small group programs, Handling Hijackles and Hijackle Recovery and Rediscovery, will shortcut your journey to healing, to save your sanity, and to stopping the crazy making. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join now and let's talk soon. Welcome to this segment of the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shade here. I'm here with my guest, Michael Regeer. I'm excited to have you on the show, Michael, because you've got new things happening, things that are just in their infancy, just being birthed into the world that are going to change things. So let me tell everybody a little bit about you. You have a PhD from the California School of Professional Psychology. You've worked at John Hopkins in the Department of Psychiatry. See, good stuff, folks. And he did postdoctoral internship in couples group psychotherapy and currently he's in Visalia, California where he's the director of the Center for Relational Excellence and if you want to know more about him you can go to michaelregeer.com and that's michael r-e-g-i-e-r.com so welcome to the program Michael. Well thank you it's great to be here. Well, it's good to have you. I always love to talk to colleagues, especially people who are new to me, and uh, meet them and find out what they're all about. So we've had a time to chat and all. But I'd like to ask a question that I think my listeners might have, because you say that you focus on emotionally focused couples therapy. So could you explain what that is? Yeah, emotionally focused therapy was developed by um, someone named Sue Johnson. And it was developed out of years of process group, of watching how couples interact. And that got paired with attachment theory. Mm -hmm. And the whole theory of and method of working with couples was developed called EFT. And um, like the name implies, when we work with couples in emotionally focused therapy, we focus on emotion primarily more than content and we want to understand 
the emotional exchange back and forth. Okay, and so are you talking about story at that point? We're, no, actually we're just talking about patterns of, of interaction and reactivity even more than the narrative. So what we care about is when, when you talk to me, then what's happening inside of me emotionally that's causing me to either move closer or to react to you. So we want to understand those triggers and de-escalate the negative cycle. So just about all couples that come in are in the middle of some kind of negative cycle. So we, we de-escalate that and then we deepen the connection emotionally. Interesting. You know, I, I'm interested in the work of John Gottman, of course, and everybody. Um, and what he tells us is that all his research, because for those of you who are watching and listening don't know, he did a lot of hard data research, scientific research into the different components of relationship. And his research told him that a couple has a problem usually for up to six years before they get any help. Mm -hmm. That's yep. a long time to be living with conflict or dissonance or disconnection. Mm -hmm. What's your experience with that, Michael? Six years or longer. I mean, I've, I get couples in my practice. I had a couple come in that were um, in their early 80s and were still struggling. They've been struggling all of their relationship. So... You know, attachment bonds are powerful, and um, people don't break them easily. And, you know, it's unfortunate that when the connection has produced a negative cycle of conflict, they don't get in sooner because we have really great ways now to help them heal that and find happiness that, that they didn't even know that they could have. Yeah, and you know, the words that you used, breaking the cycle, so important because my work, although I do work with couples a lot, and I do all my work through video conferencing, so my clients are all over the globe. And when I wrote the book, Kaizen for Couples, you know, there's a lot of things in there to positively move your, your relationship to a, a closer, more emotionally intimate level. But you just currently uh, have a book that's out there called Emotional Connection, mm -hmm. The Story and Science of Preventing Conflict and Creating Lifetime Love. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Story and science and preventing yeah. contact and creating lifetime love. So tell us about your book. Yeah. So our book is, we call it a fiction nonfiction. It's a, it's a fictional story about a couple we created and Paula actually does that writing about the story of a couple named Ben and Claire who have this you know they're a very attractive couple he's a surgeon she's a photojournalist it's like they they were highly attracted to each other felt like they had the world by the tail until they got they got married like so many couples they got busy in their individual careers and then he found himself opening up to a colleague and having an emotional affair and she discovers um, the text message. So I won't give the whole story away, but basically we go from story uh, to the therapy office, what's happening in therapy, and I outline that narrative. And then we move from there into the science of attachment. And what we try to do is 
you know, couples don't understand that what happens in their first two years of life translates into their adult attachment dynamics. So we take them from present day back into their childhoods and we talk about the insecure attachment styles that they both developed in their childhood years that followed them throughout adolescence into their adult relationship. And we, we try to give the reader the big picture of what that looks like. And then the other piece of it is trauma. And when there's a relationship betrayal, um, people get traumatized. I, I cannot tell you how distressed, troubled um, people are that, that have been betrayed. I mean, oh, yes. people don't even understand how much people suffer from relationship betrayal. And how you handle trauma has everything to do with whether the relationship is going to survive or die. And so we talk about how important it is when there is trauma to get help and get help with turning toward the, the injury and really, you know, for the betrayer to be really authentically emotionally sorry for what they did and supportive of the person that's been damaged so that that trauma can heal and that the attachment bond can be restored. So we try to help readers understand that. That's a whole lot. Let's break that down a little bit. First of all, I know many people have heard the term emotional affair. Right. But it's really important for people to understand what happens because when somebody gets on Facebook, for instance, and they start looking forward to getting to their computer and they start using terms of endearment with somebody, that is something that people feel the partner often feels is kind of a gray area. And the person who is doing that is saying, Oh, it doesn't mean anything. I'll never meet this person. And sometimes we don't get into the absolute, naming of it it is an emotional affair and it is causing a rift in our relationship so what have you learned about emotional affairs that i might not have mentioned right then well you know most of them actually start kind of like you were saying pretty innocently you know people get disconnected somewhat in their relationships Um, just the way we work together as male and female colleagues we can start talking about our work together and then say, Oh, why don't we have lunch? And now we start talking about our kids and our lives. And then all at once we find out, Oh wow, we've got a lot in common. This feels really good. And then we make the, you know, really desperate, terrible mistake of saying, yeah, and I feel kind of lonely in my relationship. Right. And then, wow, there you have it. So now I've got somebody else supporting me in my loneliness And our brains at that point, because our brains are constantly searching for attachment bonds, they light up like Christmas trees. We are excited about it. And people don't get it. I mean, this is a really big deal because all of the sudden, all of that, that new love neurology gets lit up and we get a big dopamine surge. And even if we aren't sexually active with that person, we're we are obsessed. We're like, we're on cocaine in this relationship. Exactly. And put it away. Right. 
no, and you don't want to. Like, right. I deserve this. I deserve yeah. to feel good. Yeah. This is a great thing. And, and we're not and doing you, anything wrong, right? No, I mean, and, and you can justify it like crazy. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I've been good. I'm not doing anything wrong. I am simply with a colleague or with a person online or whatever. Yeah. But it's yeah. not that simple because those bonds. And I want to go back to the other things that you were saying a little earlier, Michael. And this first couple of years of life, you know, I've had clients who said to me, oh, what difference does it make? Well, yes, it makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. Because what if you were, you were a person who experienced ACEs or SENS, which mm -hmm. adverse childhood experiences right. and childhood emotional neglect? Exactly. What if that happened to you? Like yeah. I've done shows on that, Michael, so yeah. people can go back and refer to that. Yeah, but okay. we're talking about when your brain chemistry and when your experience of the world was coming into you through your senses, mm -hmm. not through the language, but through the tone of voice or the feeling, right. Right. as opposed to knowing what those words meant, it was just what was the feeling I got and what did I get the idea of who I am? Am I okay? Am right. I safe? You know, things like that. So. Talk a little more about those first couple of years of life and why they're so important. Well, they're so critical. Um, Alan Shore at UCLA talks about those first two years of life in terms of what happens with brain development. But it's in those first two years that our, our brains are doubling in size and all of the neurology is getting in place for you know, either feeling secure or insecure. And what most people don't understand is that it's the quality of the emotional communication in those first two years. We've got to remember that infants are pre-verbal mm -hmm. in their first year of life, and then they start verbalizing. But most of what they communicate in terms of, of want and need comes through emotion. So depending on how caregivers are responding to that emotion, it will either create a felt sense of feeling secure or insecure with the people that they depend on or, you know, person that they depend on the most. We call that, you know, the primary caregiver, the primary attachment figure. So that attachment style, either we're going to be insecure and be grasping and reaching for connection, or we're going to become avoidant and just shut down those emotions and build a wall around them and not act like we need anyone. anyone. And so what, what happens a lot of the time is that um, one person with, a, with an insecure attachment style, an anxious attachment style, will, will meet this avoidant person who looks like they have it all together, right? They look like, boy, this this guy doesn't react, he looks cool, calm, this person can take care of me, right? So then the anxious and the avoidant get together. Oh, and now we've got a match made in heaven and we're going right down into my territory, which right? is the hijackal, right? Right, right, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all unconscious. I don't, I don't, make it anybody's fault, but I, I really try to help them understand that, that this dynamic, this, this reaching for someone who shuts down, because the person who's reaching is reaching with a lot of unmet emotional need, and then the, the, the avoidant person gets flooded by that, because the avoidant person 
self-regulates by squashing emotion. Right. So that dynamic creates even more insecurity for both of them. And that's what causes the reactive cycle that we're talking sure. So, you know, this is what happens when you get the extremes, particularly. You get somebody who's, let's just put it in really common language. We get somebody who is in a situation where they're very, very anxious and what they become is a people pleaser in a doormat. Right. And they go and they are attracted to somebody who seems powerful and has it all together, like you said, mm -hmm. and, and knows what to do and maybe mm -hmm. even tells you what to do so you feel mm -hmm. secure. Mm -hmm. And then all trouble starts. All right? trouble starts. Because right. <laughs> yeah. this is really not going to go anywhere good over time because we've got this incredible big person with a small person who is slowly being mm -hmm. taken over. Yeah. And, and I love what you're saying because you put it into some words that my listeners haven't heard before, which think about it, everybody. That happened to us when we're little. It had nothing to do with us. That's right. So what, what, what you were also talking about, Roberta, was that trauma happens. So we, have, we call it developmental trauma when it happens when we're young, but people get get abused or betrayed or you know, neglected uh, neglected right and so they can they kind of pull it together and sometimes those people are overachievers they they act more adult than they should when they're young so they really look like they have it together and they enter a relationship that way and then the other person has some kind of affair or betrayal right and that just opens up it just activates all of that insecurity and just kind of like overnight this person who looked like they were overachieving absolutely regresses and falls apart mm -hmm. and and then the person who did this thing that doesn't think that this thing is that big of a deal it was just emotional then begins to say to the other person you're overreacting pull it you're together i'm sorry let's just put this behind us and move on well you don't we don't just put it behind us and move on we've got to repair that injury to move on yes and you know these are wonderful things and we're going to talk more about them in the second part so my guest today is dr michael regeer you can find him at michael r-e-g-i-e-r.com and learn more about him and his great book emotional connection you can go and find that too i hope you will and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about toxic relationships and how all of these things we've spoken about in this part relate to what happens when you're in a basically toxic relationship and what you can do about that. So stay tuned. No matter what's happening right now, life can get better. If you have a good relationship, it can become great. If your relationship is in trouble, we can find a solution. The good news is that it's in your hands to start. The not-so-good news is that it takes time, new insights and skills, and a whole bunch of willingness. But who would settle for less? Not you, right? Good. You want to feel seen, heard, known, accepted, and appreciated. You want honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability, too. Read my book, Kaizen for Couples, available for download at couplesbook.com. Start there 
and let's talk soon. Hello and welcome to this segment, and it's the question and answer segment of the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and here's the question. And you know, you can always ask a question. You can submit it, and I will answer it anonymously, or you can give me a name you'd like to be called by, or you can use your real name. And all you have to do to submit your question is go to forrelationshiphelp.com slash submit. Easy. So you can ask your question, like I said, anonymously, and I will answer it. So it's a really good opportunity to ask a very important question, which is probably on the mind of many, many people who listen to the show. So today I have a question from Button, and her question is this. For 10 years, I believed his anger was my fault, as he said so. He only showed his angry side to me while saying he doesn't get angry, And he'd say he's angry because of me. He'd tell me to leave and then get angry when I left. Why are you doing this to me? I was made wrong to get upset when he questioned paternity. I'm building my self-esteem. I'm standing up for myself and kids. He pushes my buttons every day. I feel on purpose. Couples therapist advised me to ignore his button pushing for 30 days that he'll see I'm not the cause for his pain. I haven't been able to do it for 30 days straight. I'd feel like a doormat that he could do whatever he wants and laugh at me. If I can, I ignore the traps, but he'll find new ways to push my buttons, followed by gaslighting, such as, oh, you're imagining that. Why would I ever do that? That never happened. So my question is, what would be healthier option for me? Ignoring his attempts to get my reaction or saying, that's not okay, I won't accept that, and setting boundaries, and should I do it all the time? Really good questions. First of all, let's just remember that hijackals, those difficult, toxic, and often disturbing people that we talk about here, they will always make everything your fault. So, of course, his anger is your fault. And then you uncovered another piece, which is he shows his anger to you and then doesn't show it to other people. I would bet he probably has occasionally shown it to other people, but mostly what hijackals do is show the worst to the person that they say they love the most or the people at home that they say they love the most and then put on a good show outside of the house, which is really crazy making because when you go to tell somebody what's happening to you, they have no experience of that. So they say, oh, I can't believe that of him or her. So there's two things. First of all, he says, anger is your fault. That's what a hijacker will always do. Then he blames you for his anger. It's always your fault, of course, but then he's not going to take any responsibility for his part in anything. So yay, you're building your self-esteem and standing up for yourself even when he pushes your buttons. So the idea that a therapist you went to advised you to ignore his button pushing for 30 days so that he'll see you're not the cause of his pain um, could be advice that might work. From my point of view, I would say no, 
he's not going to see that you're the you're not the cause of his pain because you are his prey you are the person he blames for everything it has nothing to do with his ability to see what's so he's perfect and everything that goes wrong is your fault so not saying anything about it for 30 days is a good exercise for you in some sense, but it certainly won't show him anything except that he has more power over you because now you just don't, you don't respond to him. And that will make him very angry, so he'll just push the buttons more. However, what you can do here is to simply set a boundary, and you ask that question, so I'm going to answer it here. Your question was, what would be healthier for me? Ignore his attempts to get my reaction or saying that's not okay and I won't accept that and setting boundaries. I think both things have their place. If you know that habitually he gets a rise out of you for certain things, you get angry, you get upset, you get sad or whatever, then when you actually respond in those ways, you feed his uh, need for power over you. It says to him, yes, I do have power over her. Look, she's crying. Look, she's unhappy. Look, she's angry. So there's value in toning it down. But I think it has to go hand in hand with saying, I don't see it that way, or that's not how I believe it happened, or I don't think that's an accurate response. You say something that affirms and validates you. It has nothing to do with a hijackal. You're doing it for yourself. Say something that affirms and validates you to you, for you. And then do set boundaries, but set them quietly without any great force behind them because the force is going to be in the fact that they are non-negotiable. And how you set a good boundary is you simply say, you know, what works for me is to is this an example? What works for me is to feel respected that I know how I feel and what I think. So when I say what I think or what I feel, I expect to be heard and believed. If that doesn't happen, it doesn't change my mind. So please, I would prefer you to acknowledge that I too know what I think and what I feel in the same way that you know what you think and what you feel. Now, don't for a minute think that the hijackal is going to have a big epiphany when you do that and go, oh my, you must be right. No, that's not going to happen because that would be giving up too much power. You're doing this for yourself. You're doing this to validate and affirm your knowledge. Remember, the hijackal wants to be having you second-guess yourself and question all your decisions and doubt your sanity. You're affirming this because you are not going to fall into the crazy-making trap that, in this case, he is setting for you. Remember, there are just the same number of female and male hijackals. So in this case, we're talking about this woman's husband, Button's husband. So the answer to it is do both. Ignore his attempts to get a reaction, but don't ignore anything that is untrue and speak up and have a strong boundary. State it quietly just state it quietly because let him hear it for sure, but you're saying it to affirm and validate yourself. I certainly hope that helps, Button. It is a big problem, and you're obviously trying to work things out with this person. 
you do everything you can to strengthen and empower yourself. And if that is not enough, which it often isn't with a hijackle, then maybe you're going to have to look at doing a few things that cause a little distance from him. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. For further information, go to 4 Relationship Help, subscribe to my free Tips for Relationships newsletter, read the blog, and visit my YouTube channel at 4 Relationship Help. Talk soon. I'm so glad you spent this time with me today. I hope you heard something that touched your heart. You can have the life and relationships that you most want, and that begins within you now, today. I'm always here for you. Life can get better, and you heard that from me, the Relationship Help Doctor, Roberta Shaler. I work with clients throughout the world through video conferencing. We can talk. Learn more at fourrelationshiphelp.com, visit youtube.com slash fourrelationshiphelp, and if you want to listen to the show's archives, visit relationshiphelpshow.com. Join me for next week's show. I'll see you then. Talk soon.